Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. review we loved. The subject line is, better than any sleep medicine, and it goes, I've always had trouble sleeping and have tried everything. This podcast works better than any medication or treatment I've tried, and better yet, it has zero side effects. As a therapist, I recommend it to all my clients as part of a good sleep hygiene routine. Thank you so much to Kelly, with an I, for your thoughtful review and for spreading the word. We are so happy to help you fall asleep easier. This episode is brought to you by The Invisible Thread. Tonight, we'll read the next part to The Princess and the Goblin, a children's fantasy novel by George MacDonald. If you'd like an easy way to listen to these continuing episodes in order, go to snoozecast.com slash series. When we left off, the old lady came to Curdy in his feverish dreams and restored him to health. He awakened knowing that the goblins had invaded the royal house. He rushed to the rescue, singing rhymes, stomping on goblin feet, and freeing the gentlemen at arms. Together, they rout the goblins in their midst, along with the goblin queen. your eyes. Relax your body 
into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Where's the princess? cried Curdie again and again. No one knew, and off they all rushed in search of her. Through every room in the royal house they went, but nowhere was she to be found. Neither was one of the servants to be seen. But Curdie, who had kept to the lower part of the house, which was now quiet enough, began to hear a confused sound as of a distant hubbub and set out to find where it came from. The noise grew as his sharp ears guided him to a stair and so down to the wine cellar. It was full of goblins whom the butler was supplying with wine as fast as he could draw it. While the goblin queen and her party had encountered the men-at-arms upstairs, Rabbit, with another company, had gone off to search the house. They captured everyone they met, and when they could find no more, they hurried away to carry them safe to the caverns below. But when the butler, who was amongst them, found that their path lay through the wine cellar, he bethought himself of persuading them to taste the wine, and, as he had hoped, they no sooner tasted than they wanted more. The routed goblins, on their way below, joined them, and when Curdie entered, they were all with outstretched hands, in which were vessels of every description, from saucepan to silver cup, pressing around the butler, who sat at the tap of the huge cask, filling and filling. Curdie cast one glance around the place before commencing his attack and saw in the farthest corner a terrified group of the domestics unwatched, but cowering without courage to attempt their escape. Amongst them was the terror-stricken face of Ludi, but nowhere could he see the princess. Seized with the horrible conviction that Rabbit had already carried her off, he rushed amongst them, unable for wrath to sing any more, but stamping and cutting with greater fury than ever. Stamp on their feet, stamp on their feet, he shouted, and in a moment the goblins were disappearing through the hole in the floor like rats and mice. They could not vanish so fast, however, but that many more goblin feet had to go limping back over the underground ways of the mountain that morning. 
Presently, however, they were reinforced from above by the king and his party, with the redoubtable queen at their head. Finding Curdie again busy amongst her unfortunate subjects, she rushed at him once more with the rage of despair, and this time gave him a bad bruise on the foot. Then a regular stamping fight got up between them, Curdie, with the point of his hunting knife, keeping her from clasping her mighty arms around him as he watched his opportunity of getting once more a good stamp at her skin-shod foot. But the queen was more wary as well as more agile than hitherto. The rest, meantime, finding their adversary thus matched for the moment, paused in their headlong fury and their hurry and turned to the shivering group of women in the corner. As if determined to emulate his father and have a son-woman of some sort to share his future throne, Rabbit rushed at them, caught up Ludi, and sped with her to the hole. She gave a great shriek, and Curdie heard her and saw the plight she was in. Gathering all his strength, he gave the queen a sudden cut with his weapon, came down as she started back with all his weight on the proper foot, and sprung to Ludi's rescue. The prince rabbit had two defenseless feet, and on both of them, Curdie stamped just as he reached the hole. He dropped his burden and rolled shrieking into the earth. Curdie made one stab at him as he disappeared, caught hold of the senseless Ludi, and having dragged her back to the corner, there mounted guard over her, preparing once more to encounter the queen her eyes flashing green lightning through it. She came on with her mouth open and her teeth grinning like a tiger's, followed by her king and her bodyguard of the thickest goblins. But the same moment in rushed the captain and his men and ran at them stamping furiously. They dared not encounter such an onset. Away the goblins scurried, the queen foremost. Of course, the right thing would have been to take the king and queen prisoners and hold them hostages for the princess, but they were so anxious to find her that no one thought of detaining them until it was too late. Having thus rescued the servants, they set about searching the house once more. None of them could give the least information concerning the princess. Ludi was almost silly with terror, and 
and although scarcely able to walk, would not leave Curdie's side for a single moment. Again, he allowed the others to search the rest of the house, where, except a dismayed goblin lurking here and there, they found no one. Well, he requested Ludy to take him to the princess's room. She was as obedient as if he had been the king. He found the bedclothes tossed about, and most of them on the floor, while the princess's garments were scattered all over the room, which was in the greatest confusion. It was only too evident that the goblins had been there, and Curdie had no longer any doubt that she had been carried off at the very first of the inroad. With a pang of despair, he saw how wrong they had been in not securing the king and queen and prince. But he determined to find and rescue the princess as she had found and rescued him, or meet the fate to which the goblins could doom him. Just as the consolation of this resolve dawned upon his mind, and he was turning away for the cellar to follow the goblins into their hole, something touched his hand. It was the slightest touch, and when he looked, he could see nothing. Feeling and peering about in the gray of the dawn, his fingers came upon a tight thread. He looked again, and narrowly, but still could see nothing. It flashed upon him that this must be the princess's thread. Without saying a word, for he knew no one would believe him any more than he had believed the princess. He followed the thread with his finger, contrived to give Ludy the slip, and was soon out of the house and on the mountainside, surprised that, if the thread were indeed the grandmother's messenger, it should have led the princess, as he supposed it must, into the mountain, where she would be certain to meet the goblins rushing back enraged from their defeat. But he hurried on in the hope of overtaking her first. When he arrived, however, at the place where the path turned off for the mine, he found that the thread did not turn with it, but went straight up the mountain. Could it be that the thread was leading him home to his mother's cottage? Could the princess be there? He bounded up the mountain, 
like one of its own goats. And before the sun was up, the thread had brought him indeed to his mother's door. There it vanished from his fingers, and he could not find it, search as he might. The door was on the latch, and he entered. There sat his mother by the fire, and in her arms lay the princess, fast asleep. Hush, Curtie, said his mother. Do not wake her. I'm so glad you're come. I thought the cobs must have got you again. With a heart full of delight, Curdie sat down at a corner of the hearth. On a stool opposite his mother's chair, and gazed at the princess, who slept as peacefully as if she had been in her own bed. All at once, she opened her eyes and fixed them on him. Oh, Curdie, you're come, she said quietly. I thought you would. Curdie rose and stood before her with downcast eyes. Irene, he said, I'm very sorry I did not believe you. Oh, never mind, Curdie, answered the princess. You couldn't, you know. You do believe me now, don't you? I can't help it now. I ought to have helped it before. Why can't you help it now? Because, just as I was going into the mountain to look for you, I got hold of your thread, and it brought me here. Then you've come from my house, have you? Yes, I have. I didn't know you were there. I've been there two or three days, I believe. And I never knew it. Then perhaps you can tell me why my grandmother has brought me here. I can't think. Something woke me. I didn't know what, but I was frightened, and I felt for the thread, and there it was. I was more frightened still when it brought me out on the mountain, for I thought it was going to take me into it again and I like the outside of it best. I supposed you were in trouble again, and I had to get you out. But it brought me here instead, and, oh, Curdie, your mother has been so kind to me, just like my own grandmother. Here Curdie's mother gave the princess a hug, and the princess turned and gave her a sweet smile, and held up her mouth to kiss her. Then you didn't see the cobs? asked Curdie. No, I haven't been into the mountain, I told you, Curdie. 
but the cobs have been into your house, all over it, and into your bedroom, making such a row. What did they want there? That was very rude of them. They wanted you to carry you off into the mountain with them for a wife to their prince rabbit. Oh, how dreadful, cried the princess. But you needn't be afraid, you know. Your grandmother takes care of you. Ah, you do believe in my grandmother then. I'm so glad. She made me think you would someday. All at once, Curdie remembered his dream and was silent, thinking. But how did you come to be in my house and me not know it? asked the princess. Then, Curdie had to explain everything. How he had watched for her sake, how he had been wounded and shut up by the soldiers, how he heard the noises and could not rise, and how the beautiful old lady had come to him, and all that followed. Poor Curdie, to lie there hurt and ill, and me never to know it, exclaimed the princess, stroking his rough hand. I would have come and nursed you, if they had told me. I didn't see you were lame, said his mother. Am I, mother? Oh, yes, I suppose I ought to be. I declare I've never thought of it since I got up to go down amongst the cops. Let me see the wound, said his mother. He pulled down his stocking, when behold, except a great scar, his leg was perfectly sound. Curdie and his mother gazed in each other's eyes, full of wonder, but Irene called out, I thought so, Curdie. I was sure it wasn't a dream. I was sure my grandmother had been to see you. Don't you smell the roses? It was my grandmother healed your leg and sent you to help me. No, Princess Irene, said Curdie. I wasn't good enough to be allowed to help you. I didn't believe you. Your grandmother took care of you without me. She sent you to help my people anyhow. I wish my king papa would come. I do want so to tell him how good you have been. But, said the mother, we are forgetting how frightened your people must be. You must take the princess home at once, Curdie, or at least go and tell them where she is. Yes, mother, only I'm dreadfully hungry. Do let me have some breakfast first. They ought to have listened to me, and then they wouldn't have been taken by surprise as they were. That is true, Curdie, but it is not for you to blame them much, you remember? Yes, mother, I do, only I must really have something to eat. You shall, my boy, 
as fast as I can get it, said his mother, rising and setting the princess on her chair. But before his breakfast was ready, Curdy jumped up so suddenly as to startle both his companions. Mother, he cried, I was forgetting. You must take the princess home yourself. I must go and wake my father. Without a word of explanation, he rushed to the place where his father was sleeping. Having thoroughly roused him with what he told him, he darted out of the cottage. He had all at once remembered the resolution of the goblins to carry out their second plan upon the failure of the first. No doubt they were already busy and the mine was therefore in the greatest danger of being flooded and rendered useless, not to speak of the lives of the miners. When he reached the mouth of the mine, after rousing all the miners within reach, he found his father and a good many more just entering. They all hurried to the gang by which he had found a way into the goblin country. There, the foresight of Peter had already collected a great many blocks of stone with cement, ready for building up the weak place well enough known to the goblins. Although there was not room for more than two to be actually building at once, they managed by setting all the rest to work in preparing the cement and passing the stones to finish in the course of the day a huge buttress filling the whole gang and supported everywhere by the live rock. Before the hour when they usually dropped work, they were satisfied the mine was secure. They had heard goblin hammers and pickaxes busy all the time, and at length fancied they had heard sounds of water they had never heard before. But that was otherwise accounted for when they left the mine, for they stepped out into a tremendous storm which was raging all over the mountain. The thunder was bellowing and the lightning lancing out of a huge black cloud which lay above it and hung down 
its edges of thick mist over its sides. The lightning was breaking out of the mountain, too, and flashing up into the cloud. From the state of the brooks, now swollen into raging torrents, it was evident that the storm had been storming all day. The wind was blowing as if it would blow him off the mountain, but, concerned about his mother and the princess, Curdie darted up through the thick of the tempest. Even if they had not set out before the storm came on, he did not judge them safe. For in such a storm, even their poor little house was in danger. Indeed, he soon found that but for a huge rock against which it was built, and which protected it both from the blasts and the waters, it must have been swept if it was not blown away for the two torrents into which this rock parted the rush of water behind it united again in front of the cottage. Two roaring streams, which his mother and the princess could not possibly have passed. It was with great difficulty that he forced his way through one of the streams and up to the door.